This is what Holy Scripture says. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some, of you, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 to the passage that passage Tristan read for us. We're now nearing the end of our series that we began just two months ago. When it comes to the second part of Paul's letters written to us in, uh, in the New Testament, just generally speaking, what you'll often find is Paul focusing on a number of different Christian ethical commands that usually have to do with your relationships in the church, your marriage, your family, your workplace, and how you live amongst unbelievers. That, that seems to be a, a pattern that we see, but when we come to 2 Thessalonians, Paul doesn't go on his usual rapid fire on multiple issues, but he only deals with one topic. He only deals with one issue, and that's idleness in the life of the church. Now, to be honest, idleness may not sound like the biggest deal in the world, but I think it's worth noting that almost one-third of, this in, uh, of the entire content of this letter is given to this single issue. It, it pretty much takes up the majority of chapter 3. And, and I mean, that alone should tell you something about the weightiness and the significance of this issue. The reason why Paul addresses this single issue head-on is because idleness is present in the life of the church, and Paul, as the one who planted this church, is deeply, deeply concerned. Look at verse 11 of our text. Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Some among you, you church. He's he's not talking about idleness outside of the church. He's talking about idleness inside the church. Uh, Let me ask you a question. When you hear the word idleness, what comes to mind? I I imagine that for many of you, it sounds synonymous with laziness or slothfulness. Maybe the picture that comes to mind is that of a couch potato. You know, the the, the full-grown man who is refusing to work even though he's able to? He's on the couch all day and night. He sleeps on the couch. There's garbage all around him from fast food restaurants. And when he's awake, all he does is he plays video games and watches movies. Let me just be clear, that kind of lazy and slothful lifestyle is displeasing to God, and it is grieving to the Spirit of God. But in the context of 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul is not 
talking about the lazy couch potato. Idleness, in this context, refers to the person who is living a kind of disorderly, unruly, and irresponsible lifestyle. That's what the word more literally means. It means disorderly. The idle person is someone who is living out of step and out of line of God's word. So look at verse 6 and pay particular attention to what Paul says at the end. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about the word tradition and how it basically refers to Scripture. These aren't the traditions of man. These are the traditions of God, which means that these idle people people are not living in obedience to the Word of God. I, I, I guess you can say that they're being lazy when it comes to matters of Christian obedience. But what are they doing? How are they spending their time? We'll drop down to verse 11. Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. These idle people are not busy obeying the word of God, and they're not busy with the work that the Lord has placed before them. Rather, they are spending their time and their energy meddling in the affairs of others. That's what busybody means. It's not a compliment. You don't want to be known as a busybody. Busybodies have their priorities all messed up. They're energetic people, but they're focused on the wrong things. They're they're not focused on the tasks in front of them. They're, They're focused on all the things that are unprofitable, unhelpful, and unloving, disconnected from them. And as a result, they're not able to provide for themselves, and they become a kind of unnecessary burden onto others. You know, there's only one time in the New Testament where Paul very clearly says that a professing Christian is worse than an unbeliever. Do you know where that is? It's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's the one time Paul says that. Even believers know the value and the importance of working hard and making a living to provide for themselves and for their family. If unbelievers know the significance of this, then how much more the people of God. If we look to the very beginning of the Bible, we can see that work was deeply meaningful and deeply significant in the eyes of God. When God created the world before uh, the fall, before sin entered the world, He called Adam and Eve to work. Genesis 1 uh, verse 28 It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in verse 31, and God saw everything that he has made, including work, and behold, it was very good. Work is a part of God's good creation. He created humans to work and to work heartily for his glory which means that an idle and disorderly life contradicts the very purposes of God. See, this is no small thing in the mind of the Lord. 
Idleness is no small and insignificant issue. And because of that, as you'll see, the Apostle Paul employs some very drastic measures on the church in order to curb the sin of idleness. Because Paul understands that this, vi- this is a viral sin that will infect others. This is a kind of sin, the meddling in the affairs of others, it creates division. It sows seeds of suspicion and cynicism. It disturbs the peace and unity of the body of Christ, and above all, it brings disrepute to the name of Jesus. As one pastor said before, the most likely man to go to hell is the man who has nothing to do on earth. Idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. Idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. So you see, there's a, there's a great danger to the soul of a person who walks in idleness. And not only that, the idle person is also a great danger to the body of Christ. Now, we as Christians, we, we know that we have a deep confidence that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's, it's not our good works. That is the very center of our faith. It's, the very, it's at the very core of what we believe in, and everything else flows from that wonderful and beautiful gospel truth. We are saved by the grace of God. But listen, to presume on grace and live in idleness is a huge misunderstanding of the gospel. God saved us by His grace But he also calls us to live a life of holiness, a life of godly diligence, a life of following Jesus Christ who himself was never idle, never disorderly, and he was never out of step from doing his father's work. It was his pleasure and joy to do the work of his father. And that is why Paul is dead serious about dealing with idleness in the church. Idleness is highly unbefitting of a Christian. Now, I realize that's a very long introduction to the sermon. It might be the longest introduction that I've done yet, and we haven't even really touched the text. But I needed to establish some of that important groundwork here because what Paul says in this text might honestly be a little hard to hear. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is filled with words of tough Christian love. There are things in this passage that will come across as very surprising, maybe even a little bit shocking. There are things that Paul will say that will probably make you feel a little uncomfortable. But friends, as we go into this text, we need to remember the text before in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, we need to remember that the Lord is faithful. And the Lord's faithfulness is seen in that he will establish you. He will guard you against the evil one, and he will enable you to walk in obedience. And so it's imperative that we come humbling ourselves before the word of God and trust that he knows what is good and right, and we need to trust in his ways. Now, I want you to look at our text today, verses 6 to 12. And before we dive into the details, I I just want you to see and notice how often Paul uses the word command. Okay, just look at the text there. He he doesn't use the word command anywhere else in this letter, but in here, in this short passage, it's repeated three times in verse 6, 
in verse 10 and in verse 12. And that's important to notice because everything that Paul says in this section, it's not a suggestion. It's not even a good opinion. It's not a strong encouragement. What Paul is doing here is he is utilizing the full extent of his apostolic authority, and like a general commands his soldiers, he is commanding the church. And this isn't his own authority. Pay attention to how he invokes the name of Jesus Christ in verse 6 and in verse 12. Right? This passage is bookended with the words, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's in verse 6. And in the name, in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 12. It's, it's, it's bookended with the authority of the Lord Jesus, which shows the readers that everything in between here, everything that he's about to say is ultimately not by the authority of man, but by the authority of Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, to disobey the words of this text is to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Friends, that's the mindset that we need to have as we approach this text. As the people of God who are saved by grace, we are hearing now the explicit commands of our King, Jesus Christ. So I just want to pause here for a moment and ask that you would pray with me. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to come before his word with humility and a teachable spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are coming before you, recognizing that you are the almighty God who reigns on a throne that is from everlasting to everlasting. Father, you created the world. You are the essence of good. Your, the, the foundations of your throne are righteousness and justice. And so, Lord, we know that your ways are right and good. And so as we come and as we approach this text and as we hear the word preached, Father, we pray that you would grant us humble hearts. Help us to be people who listen. Help us to be people who understand. Illuminate our minds and our hearts and give us much grace to walk in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Now in terms of how this text is generally broken down, what Paul does here is he addresses two types of people in the church when it comes to the issue of idleness. First, he instructs the people who are not walking in idleness. That's from verse 6 to 11. And then he, at the very end, instructs those who are walking in idleness. And that's how I'm going to structure this sermon. And you can see that and follow along in your bulletins. Point number one, instructions for non-idle Christians. Now, there are basically three things that he says to the faithful, more mature Christians who are not walking in idleness. He says, number one, separate yourself from idleness. Number two, follow the example of diligence. And number three, don't support and enable idlers. So the first application, separate yourself from idleness. Again, look at verse six. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Based on this letter, the second letter and his first letter, we know for a fact that Paul has already addressed the issue and the sin of idleness with the church. He instructed them about idleness in his first visit when he was with them in person. 
If you look at verse 10, he says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay, that's dealing with idleness. He's talking about what he instructed them when he was with them in person. And then after that, when he wrote his first letter to the church, 1 Thessalonians, Paul addressed the sin of idleness again. Listen, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, as Tristan prayed in his prayer, admonish the idol. That's the instruction that he gives to the church. So he's already instructed them in person. He's exhorted them and encouraged them in his first letter. Sadly, there are still some members of the church who didn't listen, and so Paul moves away from instruction, he moves away from exhortation, and he moves into the area of command, and he escalates the response of the congregation to the level of church discipline. When we think about church discipline, at least for those of you who have been in the church for a long time, Matthew 18 is sort of your basic default text to deal with sin in the life of the church, right? You have stage one, there's private confrontation, and if that brother or sister doesn't repent, then you move to stage two, you bring two or three witnesses. And if they still don't repent, then you move to stage three, you tell it to the church. And if they still don't repent, then you excommunicate them. You treat them as an unbeliever, a Gentile, and a tax collector. But we need to understand that what Paul is talking about here is not the same thing as excommunication. We know that for a fact because if you look at verse 6, you can tell that, you can see that, that Paul still calls these idle people, what? He calls them brothers. Meaning he still regards them as genuine believers, Brother is a term of endearment that Paul uses to refer to those who are in the faith. And this becomes even more clear if you look all the way down at verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, it's possible that if this sin of idleness persists, it may eventually lead to excommunication, but we're not there yet with this text. Paul still instructs the church to use at least one more method of response. Now, there are a few times in the Bible where we're given some, listen to this, very specific instructions when it comes to dealing with very specific sins, which means that what Paul commands here is not a form of church discipline that you just use for any kind of sin. What we're talking about here is specifically the sin of idleness, as defined earlier. So let me clarify again. We're not talking about people who can't work because of sickness, because of disability, because they're either too young or too old, because they can't find a proper job, or they have other extenuating circumstances. We're not talking about the stay-at-home moms who are lovingly caring for their children, the, the students who are studying hard for a good education, the retired members of the church who have faithfully worked their whole lives. No, we're talking about a professing believer in the church who is not doing what they're supposed to be doing in their season and stage of life. They're living disorderly lives and they're, 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 they're hurting the church by meddling in the affairs of others. Paul commands the church 
to keep away from that brother or sister. If positive instruction fails, if gentle exhortation does not seem to work, then the church is to move to a form of church discipline and withdraw fellowship from this idle believer. That's what the word keep away literally means. It means withdraw from, keep aloof, avoid. Don't engage in normal Christian fellowship with them. No more small groups, no more fellowship, no more invitations to intimate meals together in the home. If you're engaging them, it is for the purpose of calling them out on their sin and pleading with them to humbly repent of their sins. For the sake of their soul and for the good of the church, you are to keep your distance from idle Christians. And listen, this is not about punishment. Jesus paid the punishment for our sins on the cross. But in love, it's to help them see the severity of their sin so that they might repent and be restored into fellowship. That is the goal, restoration and repentance. And the way to do that is by keeping your distance. There is a time in the life of the church where this kind of tough love is necessary and called for. And again, it's not about being a jerk. It's not about coming at this with some kind of superiority complex. It ought to be done with earnest prayer and and sorrow in your heart over the brokenness of sin, but it should also be done with real hope that the Lord would use this kind of separation and disfellowship to produce a godly sorrow which leads to repentance. That is the goal, to love them, to lead them to repentance. In obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, you must trust in his ways and at the right time separate yourself from idleness. Here is the second application. Follow the example of diligence. Look at the word that's repeated in verse 7 and 9. I'm going to read it all together and then just pay attention to how uh, this part of the text is bookended as well. Paul carries on and he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Imitate. This, this little section is itself bookended with the word imitate. It's about imitation and mimicking the life of Paul and his missionary team. And and the example they gave was one of hard work, self-sufficiency, and independence. Verse 7, we were not idle when we were with you. Their priorities weren't distorted. They didn't mess around and just get into other people's businesses. They were responsible and they were focused on their mission. And that's another reason why idleness is so wrong and why Paul comes out so strong here. It goes against the very things that Paul and his fellow missionaries taught with their lives. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Right? We did, they didn't receive any freebies. They didn't receive any handouts. If bread was offered, they paid for it out of their own pockets. 
They, they work hard, oftentimes with very little sleep. And, and they did this in order to financially support themselves so that they wouldn't be a burden onto the Thessalonians and that they wouldn't be a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. Now, we need to remember that Paul is not against receiving financial support. We see in other parts of the Bible that he gratefully received financial support, like from the church in Philippi. But in this instance, in wisdom, he decided to forego any financial or material support in order to give the church a visible example of what a godly work ethic looks like for their own sake. Look at verse 9. It was not because we, did not, we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Biblically speaking, Paul has a right to be paid for his ministry. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out, out the grain, and, quote, the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his wages, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, although Paul has a right to financial support for preaching the gospel, in love, he surrenders that right in order to give the Thessalonians a worthy example to follow. Christians, be diligent with the work that the Lord has placed in front of you and don't unnecessarily be a burden onto others. Whatever the task is, whether it's studying in school, whether it's taking care of the kids at home, whether it's doing your job, be diligent and be focused on the work that the Lord has in front of you. You are to separate yourself from idleness. You are to follow the example of diligence. And here's the third application. Don't support and enable idlers. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, if we don't read this verse very, very, very carefully, it could come across very insensitive and very uncaring, right? So, let me draw your attention to the key word here. In order to make proper sense of this verse, we need to pay careful attention to the word willing, Willing. Notice that Paul doesn't say, if anyone is unable to work, let him not eat. As I said before, there are many legitimate reasons why a person may be unable to work. It could be due to sickness, injury, disability, age, and other extenuating circumstances. If a fellow member in the church got hit by a car and was bedridden for a couple of weeks and making it physically impossible for them to get to work, there would be something seriously wrong with our church if we said, no, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what the Bible says. That's what the preacher said. Negative. That is not what the preacher said. Here is how one Christian author very helpfully explained it, okay? The problem isn't with people who are willing but unable to work. The problem is with people who are able but unwilling to work. You see the difference there? It's not, it's not about the people who are willing but unable, but the people who are able but unwilling. 
Paul is referring to the kind of people within the body of believers who is in a stage and season of life where they should be working and they're able to work, but they are choosing and wishing and intentionally deciding to not work. They're refusing to take responsibility of their own livelihood, and as a result, they are mooching off of the generosity from other people. When it comes to such a person, Paul gave the command before, and he reiterates it again here to the church, don't let him eat. In other words, don't provide and support such an individual. Don't pay for his groceries. Don't pay for her rent. Remember, this is not a suggestion, but a command from the Lord Jesus. I want you to think about what that actually means. It means that if you support this kind of idle brother or idle sister who is able but unwilling to work, you're not being generous, you're not showing love, you are actually acting in disobedience. That's what this means. And again, we're not talking about taking care of those who are poor, taking care of those who are living difficult lives outside of the church. We are talking about those who are in the church who are able but unwilling to work. If you are going to go against this, then you are going against the authority of Christ. And that's why Paul emphasizes the command language in this text. Now, I understand that there is a great, great, great need for wisdom here because not every situation is as black, as white, black and white as we want it to be. Sometimes it's super hard to discern whether an individual is clearly in the category of willing but unable or able but unwilling. Every situation is so complex with so many factors to consider, and realistically, it takes time to figure that out. And there is also the very real danger that some people will manipulate the emotions and guilt trip the soft-hearted, generous Christian soul. And because of that, it's important that we don't make decisions based on our emotions or feelings of guilt or in isolation trying to figure things out without proper counsel from others. What we determine to be right and wrong must begin with the Word of God. And when you're caught in this kind of dilemma and you're uncertain how to properly love and care for a brother or a sister who is asking for support, very practically go and open up 2 Thessalonians 3 and read this passage out loud and pray for wisdom. Proverbs says that if you seek wisdom, you will find it. That is the promise that the Word of God gives. If you seek wisdom, you will find it. Pray and seek wisdom and seek the counsel of other mature and godly Christians whom you trust and live your life with a clear conscience before the Lord. Do what is right according to his eyes, according to his word, not the eyes of other people, not the words of others. Paul goes on in verse 11 and he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. We don't know who, we don't know how many, but some of these Thessalonian believers were clearly living in idleness. They were not obeying the Word of God. They were not working heartily to be independent. Instead, they were busy bodies. 
They were meddlers. Meddlers occupy themselves with worthless and unprofitable activities, butting into everyone else's business instead of taking responsibility for their own lives. So again, you're not supposed to think about the lazy couch potato or the full-grown man who doesn't want to work, so he sleeps in until five in the afternoon. Maybe that's what this person does. But when he's awake, instead of doing nothing, he sits in front of the computer, he opens up social media, he scrolls through all the latest fees, and he gives his unwanted opinion about what everyone else in the world ought to do. That's what a busybody does, meddling in the affairs of others that he is so far removed from and so disconnected from. And the Bible warns us against meddling in the affairs of others. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I, just, I was reading that text this past week, and I just found it interesting that, that Peter mentions only four things there. He says murderer, thief, evildoer, and within that category, he also throws in meddler. Meddlers go outside their personal boundaries and they get fixated on what others are doing and it often leads to gossip, it often leads to offense and it is a disruption of peace and unity. It is evil and it is sinful. And Paul wants you to have nothing to do with it. If there is someone like that in the church, someone who professes to be a believer And friends, what they so desperately need is your sincere love and care, but not in the form of your support and provision which leads to enablement, but in the form of separation and suffering by letting them deal with the consequences of their sin. And by the grace of God, that may lead to repentance. Brothers and sisters, As hard as those instructions may be, trust that the Lord is faithful. Trust that he knows what is good, right, and true, and seek to live a life of simple obedience to the word of God. Trust in his ways. These are the instructions that he gives to non-idle Christians about how to deal with persistent idleness in the body of Christ. And now he turns and he gives his instruction to idle believers. Here's point number two, instruction for idle Christians. Paul really has only one thing to say, one commandment to give, one encouragement to share to those in the church who are living idle and disorderly lives. Look at verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Do their work quietly and earn their own living. In other words, work for peace and independence. Work for peace and independence. This is the will of Jesus Christ for your life. This is the command and the encouragement Paul gives to idle Christians in the Lord. Now, when Paul calls on them to do their work quietly, that doesn't mean you have to keep your mouth shut and, and, and work in absolute silence. We're, we're not supposed to take that word literally. Some of your jobs require you to speak. You ought to speak. 
To work quietly is the opposite of meddling in the affairs of others. To work quietly is to work in such a way that does not feed into division and disunity, but it produces peace and unity. As, as Paul already said in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, aspire to live quietly. He uses that same word there, quietly, and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. The, the, the main idea behind that point is that you're to be focused and diligent with the tasks that are in front of you. If you're working at a paying job, then focus on that job. Don't steal work time and do other things. Work with integrity and work heartily as to the Lord. If you're at home watching the kids, be faithful to your kids. Be faithful to raise them up and take care of the home. If you're a student, study hard and and get your homework done. If you're retired, this doesn't mean you need to go back into the workplace. But it doesn't mean you do nothing either. You can use your time, gifts, and your years of experience to do something so important like disciple us younger Christians who are in great need of your wisdom and great need of your faithful prayers. Regardless of what stage or season of life you are in, there is the Lord's work to be done. This is the kind of quiet Christian work ethic that produces peace and independence. Independence is the goal here, right? Look again at the end of verse 12. Do their work quietly and to earn their own living. The, 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 the heart behind those words is that you won't unnecessarily be a burden onto others. Now, maybe that there are some of you here who are Christians and you've really struggled with living a disorderly busybody life. If that's you, then you first need to remember that there is the grace of God to forgive you of your sins. But you also need to remember that there is the grace of God that empowers you to walk in obedience to his commands. So by his grace, turn away from being a busybody. Turn away from living a kind of disorderly, idle life and work Wherever the Lord has you, do the Lord's work for peace and independence. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it is vital that you don't walk away thinking that Christianity is all about working harder. Don't get me wrong, that's important, but it's meaningless to just work hard without putting your faith in Jesus Christ first. There are plenty of unbelievers, plenty of people in the world who work crazy hard and make a fine living for themselves and their family. There are plenty of people in the world who go so far as to give charitably to people who are in need and people who are suffering. But when it comes to the matter of your salvation and the state of your, the eternal state of your soul, even these kinds of good works are ultimately done in vain without faith. What matters first and foremost is that you acknowledge your sin before the Lord and you recognize that you're broken and helpless without Christ and you put your trust in him. What matters most is that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he died on the cross paying the penalty of your sin so that you would be forgiven and granted everlasting life. And then you go 
and you sin no more. Live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel, and one way to do that is to work hard for peace and independence. So come to Jesus. Live for him. May God give you the grace to do so. Let's pray.